Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 6th, 2021, and this is episode 2907 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a good one for you today. We're going to talk about virtual nations. I kind of opened this up yesterday a little bit when I, when I asked, are the virtual nations already here? Are they maybe, you know, we think of developing nations, are they developing virtual nations? And this was, uh, this kind of little can of worms was opened up for me by a podcast uh, that I listened to by Peter McCormack, and his podcast is called What Bitcoin Did. And the show, in particular, was called Bitcoiners Control the World with David Bailey. David Bailey is behind Bitcoin Magazine and the media publishing company behind that. They just uh, threw probably the biggest cryptocurrency party that's ever happened in the world, Bitcoin 2021 in Miami, Florida. It was pretty off-the-hook amazing. It was one of those things I wish I would have had the uh, the time to get out and go to, uh, but I didn't. Uh, I think it was over 20,000 you know, enthusiasts showed up in Miami for Bitcoin 2020. Uh, the way that uh, David Bailey put it is the whales ate Miami. Uh, they were trying constantly to find new venues for side parties and things like that, yachts to bring in. They could put you know, 50, 100 people on. Um, it, it was just completely off the hook. And his assertion was that Bitcoiners are basically taking over. The, they're the new money of the world, the new billionaire class. And yet they're open to anybody to be part of it. And this started making me wonder, like, was my original idea for a virtual nation that, that, that kind of worked on a more centralized decentralization, if that makes any sense. We'll go through what my original idea was. And it was based a lot on cryptocurrency today, and we'll talk about a lot of other things in this. And I'm, it was actually spurred also, though, by a question um, from Brian on our live feed today. Uh, he asked, it was relayed because he was over on Odyssey. So I did a live feed for Miyagi Mornings, and I said, you know, what should I talk about on the podcast today? And Brian's question was, how do we vet people when we're bringing them into groups like a Freedom Cell? So you start uh, with John Bush, and we're going to talk about John Bush's Freedom Cell some today, too. And so you start up a Freedom Cell, and you start meeting some people, and you start putting together a group, and that group forms more of a cadre of local groups that then form a cadre onto national-level groups. And you have this, this network of people that can rely on each other, that can do business with each other. And, I mean, something like that flat out is ripe to be infiltrated by an operative, directly or indirectly, and more likely indirectly, indirect uh, operatives work like this. Somebody like the FBI or the NSA or somebody like that goes to some prior military person who seems to fit the uh, the, the role well, or some other person that would seem to fit the role, but they recognize as, a, as their version of a patriot, or they expect would be their version of a patriot, and they say there's a problem with these extremist groups. And we want you to go infiltrate it. And what these groups do, and this is a big part of what happened with the Capitol riots, is they encourage, just call it stupid and violent behavior. And then that way they create, in essence, an instigated 
false flag in that they wanted it to occur. It's like a sting, but it's for a bigger thing, like how we can now use this to justify more things that we currently aren't allowed to do, but we're going to want to do now. And, and so that's a real threat. But it also made me think, like, within that, I was, I was thinking to myself this morning when I was taking care of the ducks, well, how would you do this with an actual physical piece of land? And I'm not talking about our standard libertarian, anarcho, permaculture community. I'm talking like a totally different idea that I'll throw off you today that I don't think actually should be done. But I think if you, if you go down that thought experiment, You start to then extrapolate how this would apply to how would you would ma how would you manage a virtual nation? Because I was thinking about it this way, right now uh, El Salvador has a program along with their uh, new thing where you can um, you you can you can go there and use Bitcoin as virtual currency. Included in that bill was a way to become an immediate uh, resident, a permanent resident. All I would have to do if I wanted to be an immediate permanent resident in El Salvador, and I don't have to have Bitcoin up front to do this. I could go buy three Bitcoins with cash, and I could go down to El Salvador and buy a beautiful house on the beach for three Bitcoins, about $90,000. What that will buy in El Salvador is shocking. And then immediately I am a, a national of El Salvador. I can get an El Salvadorian passport. I'm still a U.S. citizen, and I don't have citizenship, but I am a, a, a resident, right? I'm not, the national is the wrong word. I meant I'm, a, I'm an, a, an El Salvadoran permanent resident. I can stay there as long as I want. I can travel as an El Salvador, and the U.S. still has its hooks in me. But then I was thinking, like, so let's say you were doing that in your nation. How do you make sure you're not letting someone in that you shouldn't just because they have the money to get in? And I started thinking about if we created a virtual nation, Or something like that. If we created our own island nation, I was listening to a gentleman from Tonga, also on Peter McCormack's podcast, talk about bringing Bitcoin to Tonga. And Tonga only has about a hundred thousand citizens, and the problems that they're having. Like, so there was a bunch in there, and that's what I'm going to be talking about today. And I'll get to all of that. In just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is RidgeWallet.com. I love the Ridge Wallet because it makes me a minimalist. But I just told my wife this morning, I'm getting you a Ridge Wallet. And the reason is she has had a couple times in the past few years someone get a hold of her debit card number and information. And you know, like our bank's been really good about catching it. It hasn't cost us any money, but it is an inconvenience. Because what ends up happening is they shut down her card and she has to go get a new one or wait for one to come in the mail and then activate it on the phone. And and she's come to the conclusion that it's happening through skimming at gas stations and stuff. And I was explaining to her this morning how there are much more sophisticated ways to steal information off credit cards today than a skimmer that you actually have to attach to a piece of equipment like at a gas pump. And she didn't really get it. And when I explained, like, well, you can tap the card and pay, right? She goes, yeah. I said, how do you think that happens? And she's like, oh, I'm like, with the shielding on the Ridge wallet, it prevents that from happening to you. So I'm going to be getting her one that she'll you know, carry in her purse with her cards and her license and what have you. But I carry mine in my wallet. It saves me a lot of space. I don't sit on a big lump and screw up my back in my vehicle anymore. And I don't forget my wallet. It's a great tool. I've been carrying this one now for three years And it looks a little warm, but it still works perfectly. I might treat myself to a new one, too. And when I buy one for my wife or, and or for me, too, I'll get 10% off at RidgeWallet.com. And if you're MSB, you can as well. Check them out today, RidgeWallet.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. This is a magazine I've read 
honest to God, since 1993. When I brought them on as a sponsor, they said, do you want a free subscription? I'm like, I don't really need one. And they're like, well, why not? I'm like, because I'm a subscriber. And uh, we, they did eventually say, well, cancel it. We'll send you a free one as a sponsor. Okay, fine. But, I mean, I was a paying uh, reader and subscriber to Backwoods Home for over 15 years before they became a sponsor of the show. That's kind of insane. And so when they asked to be a sponsor, I was all about it. They are a great publication. Tons of information. They're now a quarterly magazine, uh, and it is a thick book publication every quarter. I love reading it, and I think you will too. too. Check them out at backwoodshome.com. And with that, let's get into the uh, main topic of today's show. And with that, let's go ahead and get on into the main topic today, which again is about virtual nations. Um, this is something that I came up with a long time ago. I did my first podcast on Asgardia would be an example. So somebody in the live, live stream is asking about Asgardia. That would be an example of an attempt at a virtual nation. I first came up with this concept at least as early as 2014. In the show notes today, there's a link to a podcast that I did in September of 2014. It was originally episode 1428, and it was called Libertas, a virtual nation. It was my idea of what a virtual late nation and I think this is really important, might look like. Not would look like, but might look like. And it kind of, I'm going to go through what that that idea was in brief in just a second. But what it, what it came from was a, just a straight up desire for more liberty and freedom in the world, for people to be able to choose their own associations. The, the concept of a voluntarist society. And how could we overcome many of the hurdles to that today. Because if you think about it, it, it's a difficult thing for people to be able to just freely associate and do business with each other. And so how could we get more of that? And, and we have enemies to that freedom of association, the first of which is taxation. And taxation is not generally thought of as an impediment to you and I doing business with each other. It's just seen more as a, an added expense um, many of us in our community consider it theft, and it most certainly is. But people would look at it and say, Jack, why, why is it actually an impediment to you and I doing business? Well, if I have to charge you sales tax, for instance, I have to charge you more money than I really want to. And, and that right there is an impediment to our ability to do business. Maybe, maybe that extra five bucks in tax is an impediment to you actually buying from me. And some larger entity, because they can be cheaper and then the tax is cheaper, you just, it's not that even that you wouldn't choose me over them, but you're in a situation where, hey, every dollar counts and I, and I have to do that. That would be one example. The other thing is the overall cost of goods and the overall cost of services has increased. So, you know, larger entities that work with governments don't actually pay taxes. Right, like we just had this big leak come out of like some of the richest and wealthiest people and entities in the world, they pay no taxes. And so, if you have these mega corporations that already have all these advantages and they do not have the actual impediment of tax that we think they do, again, we get squeezed out. So, there's actually a myriad of ways. And if you guys have any more ways that you can think of that taxes actually impede our ability to do business. Uh, go ahead and drop them in the comments, those of you that are in the live feed. And I would say another way is just simply by reducing income and reducing the assets I have on hand. 
how many more people would I do business with right now if I wasn't paying just in property taxes alone about $5,000 a year? You know, over 10 years, what is that, $50,000? How, how many of my optional transactions have been disrupted by taking that money away uh, from me, right? So that would be some examples of the impediment that government has to business. But here's another example of government having an impediment to business. Just the fact that they say certain things, I'm not allowed to sell you. Or I have to pay them, in addition to taxes, we have fees. I have to pay them a fee. I have to comply with the thing that they say that I need to be able to sell to you. So if I want to sell you raw milk, there's a whole bunch of states where there's like almost no way to do that. Then there's a whole bunch of states with a whole bunch of impediments in it. And that's as simple as I own a cow, I milk the cow, I take the milk and I give it to you that you freely buy and I freely give, and government gets in the way of that. So there's just, and we can just keep going, but I think that's enough to give us the basic definition of the problem of the interference in the state between you and I and our right to do business together. So my original idea with Virtual Nations was partly how do we solve this? How do we solve this? How do we create a space that's like, well, this is your space and your rules, and I will render onto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and, and under the true interpretation of that commandment, I guess you would call it, or that statement of, of Jesus in the Bible, render onto Caesar that which is Caesar. That means I'm not rendering onto Caesar that which is not Caesar's. Of course, the rest of it is a render on the God with his gods, but there's a whole bunch of things in between there that are neither Caesars nor gods. right? I guess God has everything, but yeah, God can choose what God wants. When it comes to me and myself, if I can create something that is outside of the realm of Caesar, it doesn't belong to Caesar. And I'm not standing on religion for that. I'm standing on legal structure for that was my original idea. So my basic idea for a virtual nation involved potentially a cryptocurrency that was backed by other cryptocurrencies so that people could somehow become vested with a financial contribution into this and have enough one-offery, I guess, that you would be able to be anonymous within this virtual nation to those outside of it if you chose to be. And at the same time, anybody within this virtual nation would be able to, to have a reputation score or something like that. And when Jack Spierko, who might be operating as, I don't know, Citizen 117B85, or Jacques Spierko, or some other pseudonym, right? Um, and I said, well, I have this thing for sale, whatever it was. And you said, well, I wish to buy it, uh, sort of like an eBay-type situation, you know that Jacques Spierko is going to send the stuff to you, whether you know it's actually Jack Spierko or not. And that my original vision of this, and I really didn't know that this was the right vision, would be, you know, it would be kind of built on some sort of web presence. And then people would be able to interact in a borderless fashion, yet within the constraints of a nation itself. And not a state. Not a state. Not a place with borders and rulers, but rather a, a, a virtual location where people are bound by common ideals. And, and the way that we handle somebody who's a problem is we don't deal with them anymore. 
we either throw them out or they become a pariah and nobody will do business with them. And that's a start. And then where could that go? And I went much deeper into it. If you want to go listen to the original podcast, there'll be a link in the podcast notes. And then after this video is done, I'll backfeed links into this video. And again, it was originally, I don't want to give you the wrong number here, 14... Uh, 1428 Libertas Virtual Nation. So if you go to the survivalpodcast.com and put in Virtual Nation, you'll be able to find that no problem whatsoever. Um, and then today, after having listened to Peter McCormack's podcast called uh, Bitcoiners Rule the World and the recap or the, uh, the, uh, the, the promotion of Bitcoin 2021 in Miami, the big conference, and hearing how basically Bitcoiners for about a week ate Miami. They took it over. I mean, they literally were like chartering private jets, and it was hard to get any more private jets because the whales came in and ate Miami. They were, they were renting yachts. Just for after parties and things like that, like we need another 150 people capacity. They're trying to find like mega yachts to rent and pull up outside the venue so that you could have like like literally they took over all of the higher end establishments and even a lot of the mid mid end establishments and stuff like that. And, and the 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 gentleman who was on there, David Bailey, said something to the effect of, you know, we are the new money. We are the new uh, the new money. And screw Davos, screw the you know the, the new world over, screw all those, screw, screw the global banks. We run the world, and I don't know if they run the world yet, but they they have a lot of power. They because money is power in our world, and they have a lot of power that's outside the banking system. And as I was listening to that, I was thinking about how that kind of isn't a virtual nation already. If you look at the people in that sphere. There's not a lot of things that one person could want that somebody else in that sphere doesn't have access to, and there's there's potential for business interoperation there at a level that we would think of as a national level of, of interoperability. Right? It's a huge body of people with a lot of money and a lot of resources and a lot of business acumen, things like that. Then I was listening to a podcast this morning while I was thinking all about this, and it was with a gentleman that is a member of parliament in the tiny island nation of Tonga. And they're like one of these nations that are working with Jack Maulers and Strike to bring the, the rails of Bitcoin into their country. And I'm, I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking about, you know, there's only 100,000 people that are either residents or citizens of Tonga. It's about 100,000. And they actually have a huge disruption by about 5,000 people, only 5% of the population that are Chinese. And they completely control the retail sector. They came in out of Hong Kong when uh, China proper began to retake control over Hong Kong. They have all these relationships back in China. And they bring in a tremendous amount of everything that's sold at retail on Tonga, which is most things, because there's only so much you can actually manufacture, grow, produce in Tonga, so they've undercut all the native shops, and then they're, they're, they basically own the retail space. And it the problem is compounded because they're smart. So what they did, all the money came in, and then all of the people that worked for the people with money came in behind them and obtained you know residency on Tonga. And then when 
you know, this guy that runs this little shop here and this guy that runs this little shop over here, they don't see each other so much as competitors. Rather, they see themselves more cooperative. So when they order all their material to come in and service their customers, they put in group mass orders. They've gilded together. And because of that, no, no Tongan nat, you know, native uh, trying to run a retail establishment can really compete with them. And I thought, you know, that's actually really smart, and there's tactical ways we could use that, but then how do you prevent that from taking over any, any sort of a nation that does this? And I started thinking about this, and this is totally a thought experiment. I mean, totally a thought experiment. I don't think we should actually do the thought experiment that I'm going to walk through right now. In other words, I don't think this is a way, and who knows, crazier things have happened, but I don't think it's really the way forward. But I think we can learn from it if we go, well, what if we tried this? And the what if we tried this I'm thinking of is, I started thinking about how, how the United States got Alaska. Like, not every piece of land that became part of a nation that some other nation owned, was a war was fought over. Alaska is a great example. Like, the U.S. kind of wanted Alaska, at least Seward did, and the Russians kind of were like, it's a big piece of land that doesn't do a lot for us right now, and we've got enough land and, you know, Nobody could have foreseen how much value there would be in the oil there or anything like that at the time. And like trying to control this and secure this and police this isn't really in our best interest. And these Americans want to pay us money for it. And so we'll just sign a deal and they'll give us money. We'll take the money and we'll give them the land. That'll avoid any sort of conflict over it. And we'll wash our hands of the need to secure, maintain, control this piece of land that's not doing much for us right now. And, of course, that's like, you know, Alaska's like two and a half times the size of Texas. It's a massive piece of land. Like, that's not something that's likely to happen again. But I, I started thinking, like, there are all these nations all over the world that are not what we think of as, as technically first world nations or um, in the cabal, in the G7 or the G20, for instance, that don't really seem to care what other people do outside of their borders. And a lot of them have islands, And if I go to, like, Costa Rica and I, I buy an island and I buy it as a piece of real property, it's simply a piece of co Costa Rica. But I started wondering in this thought experiment, is there a way that, you know, you could get together a bunch of money and go to a, a nation like this and find it? And I'm talking about a significant island, something, you know, like 7, 10, 15 square miles or a small group of islands in that size that have enough resources to at least fundamentally begin to work with and say, We want to buy it. And they say, well, you know, so-and-so owns it. It's a private island. Go buy it. No, well, we want to buy it from them. But we want to buy it from you, too. We want to form a micronation. How much? And it may be that no one would ever say yes. It also may be that some enterprising nation would go, we could use a couple billion dollars. And we don't really get much. Like, we'll never get that out of this island and sell it to you. Sovereignly sell it to you. It's their sovereign right to do so. And by de facto, when you bought it, it would become basically a, a, a nation in any other... I, I don't know how else you would describe it. So now I'm, I'm colonizing this piece of land peacefully, 
by purchasing it. And there are islands of that general size that are really not populated, you know, so I wouldn't be displacing some native peoples or something. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying this would work. I'm saying working through how this would work may lead us to start understanding how these developing virtual nations can solve their problems before they're encountered. And so let's say we did that. Well, how would we fund that? Well, right now, one of the biggest businesses in this space is people that want what they call Plan B. They want dual citizenship. They want multiple national residencies. They want to be able to like go, you know what, I'm tapping out and I'm leaving this place for a while and you can't stop me. They want to be able to travel to maybe a nation that their home nation says they can't go to. So they don't travel as an American. They travel as an El Salvadoran or they travel as, a, 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 I don't know, a Paraguayan. And this is a huge industry, and it's a multi-billion dollar. It's in the, the hundreds of billions of dollars that fly around all over the world using various residency programs. So what if you pre-funded that? And what if it would like... As more people got in, the price went up. Like, it's pretty cheap to get in in the beginning. Maybe it's 50 grand. And it could all be done with smart contracts. So if the plan didn't work, the money went back to you, right? Like, so, yeah, I, I want in on this, so I got 50 grand in Bitcoin. Here it is. Boom. Okay? And it sits in some sort of multi-sig wallet. And if the deal doesn't go through, all the money gets refunded. And it's not legal. I know it's not legal. And, again, maybe we shouldn't do it. But we're just, I'm just, we're just thinking through how this might work. And then how can we apply this to virtual nations, right? So then we, we begin to get this thing going. Well, now you got to start figuring out, well, how do we how do we handle imports and exports? Hopefully you have a really friendly relationship with the nation that you didn't, you know, conquer the island from. You purchased it from them. And so you can use a lot of their resources and be their best trade partner. How do you put energy there? Does that make you need to think really hard about geographically where you put it? How do you create a program where people need to be there? How do you keep this new libertopia from becoming a monarchy or becoming a tyranny or a tyranny of the majority? We know that democracy is a terrible idea. And I know somebody's out there going, it needs to be a republic. Yeah, look out your window, everybody that's here from the United States, and, and tell me about the glory of your republic. A republic is a form of a democracy. At least our republic is a form of democracy. There's over a hundred republics in the world. Most nations in the world today are republics. A republic is not a magical unicorn society that just works. So, I mean, obviously you'd have to have extreme limits on any form of governance, and I would prefer an anarcho-island, right? And, 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 and some way to protect individual rights with an anarcho-island. People can come and go as they please as long as they have the right to be there. And what does that mean? Pure anarchists say there are no borders, but there is property. And property has borders. And the people that would be part of this had bought their way into this. And that forms a form of border. It's not an imaginary line on a map. It's we bought this. We paid for this. We tendered consideration to this. We value this. Unless you're welcomed in as a visitor or you become part of the group, it's no different than I have 80 acres in, in, in East Texas and you don't get to come on it unless I say you can because it's my private property. It's collectively owned. 
I don't think this is a valid solution. That's not why I'm going down this pathway. Um, I think it was Peter Thiel when he was talking about seasteading years ago, back when I was first talking about virtual nations, was saying that no matter how you slice this, land is a sucker's game. Right? For those who don't know who Peter Thiel is, I believe he was Musk's partner in PayPal. Very, very wealthy man. And he was talking about building like these giant floating cities that kind of look like an oil platform, but they're really a city and they have a little mini um, nuclear reactor in the middle of them to provide power and that since you're in international waters, you're not subject to anybody's shit. And if you need to move, the whole thing just can slowly, but it can move out of the way, it can move seasonally, etc. I don't know if that's valid either, but he's right. Land is a sucker's game. Because no matter where you are, if you're on land, somebody can claim that piece of land. Some nation with that, that nation's laws can, can, can claim that piece of land, can claim sovereignty over that piece of land. You can say, well, no, well, you just described, you bought it, you're declared, maybe the United Nations recognizes you or whatever, but what stops any nation from invading you? Right? What stops that? And, and not much. And the more successful you were, the more of a target for that you would become. There's a little place called Sealand that claims itself to be a micronation, and it basically is that. It's a platform in the middle of the ocean. It, it was actually successfully repelled, but there was actually an attempt to invade and take it over at one time. right? So you have to defend yourself. Now, um, I am a, a big believer that if there was ever, let's say, a true insurrection in the United States, this idea that just because the government has nuclear weapons and F-15s does not mean that you can put down an insurrection like that. But if all you're trying to do is take over a, a seven-square-mile island you know, one squadron of jets, and you can pretty much bomb it into annihilation. You're not bombing your own land. It actually is more difficult to defend against than if you are truly an insurrection group within your own nation, right? Because you're a part. There's a place, and you can then get public support around. These people are the cause of your problem. That's how we always get people behind foreign wars. We blame people thousands of miles away, who did nothing to us for the problems of us here, and all of a sudden, rah, rah, and the flags come out, and we go attack them. So again, I think land may be a sucker's game from a standpoint of trying to stand alone sovereignly on a piece of land in, in this context. But, but, did we learn anything from this discussion so far? As we start thinking about virtual nations, we start to realize, again, the reasons for them, and the problems that they would have, and then the problems solved by not being in just a place. How do we do business and keep the government out of it? Well, you know, one way might be through the use of privacy technologies. That would be one way. There's still risks there. There's still risks there. Let's go through some groups right now that I kind of see as forming at least the basis, the foundation of eventual virtual nations. One would be John Bush's Freedom Cells. So John Bush came up with a pretty simple idea. It does use a website to get people connected to each other. And the idea is simply that I say, I want to start a Freedom Cell. And there's not one in my area I can join, so I say, I want to start a Freedom Cell. And other people that are members on that site can see that I want to do that, and I'm a certain distance away from them that they're comfortable with, and they reach out and say, well, let's start. And then there's, you know, we have two, and then three, and eventually you end up with an actual group. 
And those groups agree to do certain things, like to make sure that they are self-sufficient to a, a, a given degree, right? A given degree that they have a certain amount of food, they have a certain amount of self-defense capabilities, and they agree to do business with each other. They're gilding a lot like those Chinese people are gilding in Tonga. And that actually might be a way that that group can become really a lot more powerful if they start thinking about all the things that they do and doing things like group buys. And as you develop this group here, this cell of about eight people, and that's really more in John's vision, from what I understand, eight families. So I join, I'm bringing my wife with me, maybe you join and you have three kids, etc. So it might be a lot more bodies than just that eight, but it's kind of like eight eight units in, in, a, you know, in that cell that make up that cell. And then those cells begin to link to other cells that are in their area, and it grows and becomes a national network of cells. And that if you have a problem individual, that's up to the individuals within that cell to get rid of them. And you doesn't have to do anything to them. You're just not, you're not here anymore. You're not part of this. Goodbye. And if you have a cell... That, that, then if itself is misbehaving, the other cells just kind of defederate from it. This is really a federation, a virtual federation, right? A virtual federal republic in a way. With true ability to come and go as you, I don't want to do this anymore. And with the freedom to do business with other groups for certain things, but not all things. Now, it doesn't solve all the problems, but If John is successful in, in building that network, it's, it's as much a virtual nation as just about anything that we currently have can be. Another example to me will be is social media sites. Um, especially social media sites that begin to implement their own cryptocurrencies or other cryptocurrencies and create true communities and true marketplaces. One of the places I'm streaming this to right now is Float, and that's part of what I'm very excited about with Float. Float's coming out with a native crypto token. I am very skeptical of new tokens, new coins, etc. I think that we don't need a new cryptocurrency for every project that somebody wants to build that involves cryptocurrency. I think that it, it comes down to the temptation to print money is an irresistible power. I think for most things, Bitcoin is fine, and then maybe you need a privacy coin and a stable coin, right? So you need a pirate chain, Bitcoin, uh, and, and some sort of stable coin, maybe Pricey or Privacy, something like that. There's a new stable coin, and the stable coin itself is actually private. Like, so you need some way to be able to do business, and in most instances, you can solve all your problems with that. And focus on the technology versus, hey, promote my token so I can pump and dump and make money. But when it comes to native cryptos on, on social media sites, I, I got to tell you, it makes a lot of sense to me. And, and the reason it makes sense is if you think how Odyssey works with LBC tokens, you can have no money, none, and you can be an immigrant, right? Think about it that way. You're an immigrant to the Odyssey network. And some people would say, but... You know, Jack, when you went there, you were able to get traction a lot faster because of what you've done elsewhere, and you were able to bring some of your collateral with you, some of your social capital with, with you, etc. You were able to do a lot of things for Odyssey, so Odyssey gave you back a lot faster, right? Okay, sure. How's that different from any immigrant? If you're an immigrant that, you know, from Cuba, 
during, you know, the Cold War, where if you showed up from Cuba, we pretty much let you stay, and you climbed onto a raft and you made it to Miami and we let you stay, you had a lot longer road to becoming affluent than someone who was able to immigrate, who had some money when they showed up, maybe a few gold bars or something. It's, it's really no different, but it works the same way. But you can be the refugee on a raft and get into something like a float or an odyssey or some other version thereof. And you can earn cryptocurrency simply by using the platform, sharing the platform, etc. You don't actually have to bring any dollars or bitcoins, but those can help you. You can also get into that, that, that ecosystem without that entity being forced to KYC you or know your customer you. So I've never filled out any paperwork with, with Library Odyssey. They don't have my social security number. They don't have my bank account. They don't have, I'm just, I'm just there. And nothing prevents me from taking my LBC tokens that I earn in their ecosystem and going to a decentralized exchange or a no KYC exchange, exchanging them into Bitcoin and moving them to a cold storage wallet. And so what's going on there is that ecosystem is developing its own value, whether it's because I'm selling you a product or whether because you listen to me and you're like, you know what, I learned some shit from Jack today. I want to pay him. I want, you know, I want to pay him a buck. Like, he told me one thing today that I'm going to do in my garden, and that's going to save me a hundred bucks this year. That's worth a dollar. So if, what, if that happens on float, for instance, and in the future a float token is worth 50 cents, you might say, that eh, here's two float tokens. I didn't do a lot to get them in the first place, so I'm going to trade my value I earned with the value I got from him. And then you create this kind of recirculating thing like, so since some people are going to be moving in and need to buy the native currency, they're going to get it off the exchanges mostly if they're going to buy in. And so that brings it back into the ecosystem. You get this circular currency going, being, being, deriving its value from the ecosystem, being exported and reimported back into the ecosystem. That makes a lot of sense to me. And it starts to look very, very... Doesn't that start to look very virtual nation to you? So now I've got this place where you and I can do business in this currency that doesn't exist on paper in any way, shape, or form. And then they start integrating privacy features as well. So this would be a good reason for an organization like Float, even though the Float token won't come out as a privacy token initially, to integrate other privacy currencies, which I know they're doing. Right, they're, they're they're you know they're they're talking with the pirate chain guys. They're talking with the, the Monero guys. They're they're talking with all you know, and, and to a lesser degree like Zcash and Dash and stuff like that. Or at least even if they're not talking directly to their teams, they're they're saying, hey, we want to make sure we kind of like broaden the wallet capability here. Now you throw atomic swaps into that, and you have people doing business through social media and interacting through social media, exchanging value through social media, and most of what they're doing is invisible. As far as the value exchange, the discussion might be open or closed or private messaging because that's added too. And all of a sudden you start to look at a site like Float and it starts to look a lot like my original version of a virtual nation. I'm not saying it will work. I'm not even saying it will solve all the problems. I'm saying like we don't have to solve all the problems with any one of these solutions. We just have to solve some of the problems with each of these solutions, and we can have 
Maybe you think of it as multi-citizenship across multiple virtual nations, and we do what needs doing there. How is that really much different than the Plan B I talked about earlier? The Plan B where you get yourself, you know, national residency here and another citizenship there, and so you're a U.S. citizen, you're an El Salvadoran uh, resident, and you are a Costa Rican citizen, for instance. Now you got two citizenships and you're a uh, resident of a third country. And so you can then conduct business that way. Now, it's true the U.S. will put their hooks into you, but I can't get it in today. Once you have that going on, there's a lot of ways around that. Because I don't necessarily have to do business as Jack Spirico in El Salvador or Costa Rica. I can do business in those countries as an SA corporation in, in uh, Costa Rica, for instance, and I don't actually ever take any of the money personally. Right, I, and there's there's ways that I can pay for a lot of things, and well, it's illegal. You don't know what's illegal. You need to talk to your tax attorneys and international tax attorneys at that point. And that's the kind of money that swings around there. But that's an example of how that Plan B can be implemented. For I do things in certain places because that's where it's most beneficial for me to do those things. And I think a virtual nation has more flexibility in, in, in that type of thinking. And I'm going to get to, there's a lot of problems and probably some of you out there are like screaming at your, you know, speaker or whatever here. I'm going to talk about some of the problems this doesn't solve once we get through these ideas. But that's another place. I also think the crypto space as a whole is becoming a virtual nation. We speak a language they don't even understand. I was uh, having a conversation the other day with Xavier Hawk uh, of Phyron.com uh, and uh, a fellow member of the Goose Group uh, that will be broadcasting tomorrow night, by the way. I think X will be there tomorrow night. And we were talking about why we would use different cryptos if we were building something, and it doesn't matter what we were building. And we talked for about 10 minutes. And about 10 minutes into the conversation, he goes, you know, if... If the NSA is listening to this, most likely they have no, like anybody listening to this that's outside of our space, we might as well be speaking like Navajo or something. Like there's no way that most people would understand what we're talking about. Because we're not talking about Bitcoin, right? We're talking about back-end protocols to this stuff. And a lot of people that are new to the space, they may not understand all of that, but what, what ha it's, like, it's like moving to a country. So let's say that you're moving to a country and the native language is Spanish and you've your entire life spoken English. And so you get a little translator, you learn a few words, maybe you take a little two-week immersion course or something, and you learn basic things like donde esta la baño, where's the bathroom, uh, uno mas cerveza, por favor, señorita, right? You learn the, ba the most basic shit that anybody would want, you know, to know. And uh, how, to, how to order eggs. And I say, quieras huevos, right? Like, like Stuff like you just learn the most basic Spanish. And then you move to this new nation. And there's some people there that speak English and they try to communicate with you. But every day you're immersed in this new language. And if you're there for like six months and you go home and someone you, that you've known your whole life that only speaks English or even a little bit of Spanish is standing there. And along comes somebody to the conversation, and they say, I understand you've been living in Honduras for the last six months. And you're like, yeah. And they're like, have you learned Spanish? And you're like, see. Sí. And you guys start talking to each other in Spanish. Your old friend looks at you like, who the hell is this person? They can't understand what the hell you're saying. When my wife and I went to Mexico one time, I'm sitting there having conversations with the cab driver. She got pissed off at me because like, we're talking, and she doesn't know what we're saying. That alone to me is creating this kind of 
mutual identity. Identities come strongly through language. And the crypto space has that in of itself. And once we understand that, we can begin doing business together in ways that other people not only can't, but they don't understand. One of the reasons the governments had so much trouble regulating cryptocurrency is they don't understand it. They don't understand it. They're, they're still trying to wrap their heads around, even if we stay in just the Bitcoin space, what Bitcoin was before they took down Silk Road. That's kind of still where they're at. Yes, they understand there's exchanges and things like that, but the technology that's actually available, they don't get it. They don't get it, and they don't get why a person would create a payment system that allows people to send money from one side of the world to the other for no fees, for no cost whatsoever, to be that cheap. They'll say, well, it's money laundering. That's like that's where their head is. They'll, they're just writing off the billions of other people who see value in that, and they're only focused on this one little area of it. And when they come into that space, they really don't speak the language. And the people that really do speak the language don't have a lot of uh, interest in helping them. Doesn't mean we don't have any Benedict Arnolds in our midst, and we'll get to that. But overall, the crypto space in general is creating a language and a technology and a way of interacting and conducting business that is its own thing. And that starts to feel very virtual nation-like. And then when you watch that group become a swarm and descend on a place like Miami in the Bitcoin 2021 conference. And they're basically there as this entity, like the, the total body is an entity onto itself. You start to see what's really beginning to happen. And it's, uh, it's, it, 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 it's really interesting. And it doesn't, again, solve all the problems, but what problems does it solve? Another place we can look, and this is truly a place where there are already nations that do not have land, is religious organizations. So if you think about the, the, the Jewish nation of Israel, you might think of the piece of land that's highly contested in the Middle East, and all, but just let's not go there today before people start throwing you know accusations out and things like that. Let's just think about the fact that the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation, is its own thing, is independent of that piece of land. In fact, that's what the land nation Israel stands on. It says, if you are a Jewish person, you can, you can come be here, right? You are a citizen by the fact that you're Jewish. So that means that anywhere anybody goes, they're part of that Jewish nation. And that's generally recognized in the world. And there's other nations that have you know lost their homeland but they retain national identity but if you think about it there is an incredible amount of freedom and autonomy granted to churches just in the United States if you look at the uh, the, the Church of Latter-day Saints aka known as the Mormons but I think most of those folks prefer to be called LDS or Latter-day Saints um, Just take their religion and not include it in this discussion. That's the umbrella that they stand under. Look at some of the infrastructure that they have. The Mormon church basically has its own welfare system. And you don't have to be a Mormon to use it. If you're, you need food, you can go to some of their facilities and you can work there and then they will give you food. They won't just give you food because you showed up and said, can I have food? They will tie you in Amish in the in the. Uh, in the chat, exactly, same type of thing, right? They have their own 
and they're largely left alone. Let's continue on with the Mormons for a minute, though. Um, I learned this from one of my Mormon friends that they have these things like the, these canneries, but they also have like networks like, hey, this person needs a job. Oh, I don't have a job to give them, but then the whole network kicks in and they find that person a job. And they basically, instead of saying, you know, we hate the welfare system, they created a private and protected system of welfare used at its own discretion to help those who truly wish to help themselves. You're not going to go to that system and they're going to send you a check once a month and pay your bill to live in a housing project. But they will help you get back on your feet. And no one gets in the way of it because they're standing under this umbrella of religion. And whether or not you think that umbrella of religion should exist as a bubble within the state, it does. And I think we are at a point now in human history where we use what we have to get what we need. Right? We use what we have, we do what we can with what we have. And that's part of what we have. And if you want to really understand how powerful that bubble is and how protective that bubble is, I invite you to look up a Netflix series, uh, Leah Remini, who is the chick from uh, King of Queens, I think, right? And she was a Scientologist, and she left Scientology, and she does like this tell-all miniseries. And they talk to all these people that have been horrifically treated by this cult that is Scientology. And what it comes down to is there's so many things that this entity does that if you did it, would not be okay. And these are many of these things are very malicious, but they're doing it as a religion, and they have this bubble of protection around them. It's not just not about paying taxes, because understand this. If we create the Church of Jack Spirico, and you work for me, and I, the entity itself may not pay taxes, but if I pay you a salary, that's taxed. This idea that everything inside religion is untaxed is not sense. But there is a lot sheltered and protected there. And there's a lot of legal exemptions and and somebody mentioned the Amish and I was when I was thinking about this I was also thinking about how that applies the Freemasons again with, there's a lot of loopholes that many of these entities are able to enforce their own form of governance within and push some of the other governance out and I don't have a problem with governance I have a problem with government I have things in my car that govern things within my car so my engine doesn't blow up I, I don't hate them just because the word is similar, right? I have rules of my home that you are free to obey or you're free not to come here. And I'm sure you do too. That's a form of governance. So stateless governance is a thing. And within religions, you can have forms of governance. They can be commandments, right? And to me, I think we're, we're way too far away from having used this yet. Like, we should have done this by now. There needs to be some sort of Church of Liberty or something like that that literally has basically the uh, the, the 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 you know the nonviolent component of the non-aggression principle of libertarianism as its main commandment. Basically, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff, and that it's never okay to hurt people or take their stuff. So that literally every time the government takes your stuff, they're violating your religion. And I know there's a lot of you out there rolling your eyes so hard right now, you're in danger of going into another dimension from eye rolling. And I get why, because what you're thinking is it'll, it'll never work. It may never work, and it might. It will never work overnight. None of these movements, and this is something we've lost freaking patience in our society today. 
we, we really have lost patience. We've lost the, the virtue of patience. The understanding that just because something can't be done overnight doesn't mean it's not worth doing. We live in this microwave society that I call it where everybody wishes to just, if I can't push a button and have it work now, if it takes more than a week or two, then, then it's, it's not valid. Because if you started something like that, what are you going to have, 50 people, 100 people, 1,000 people? Like, no one cares. But how, how can you develop a system that's based on morals and ethics, which is basically, and, and common belief, which are the defining factors of any religion, right? I mean, and I know somebody out there is, you know, Christian and saying, but there's one true God. Yeah, you can, you can believe that, and you could still be part of this faith as well, right? Or you can choose not to be. It's up to you. But I'm not talking about you or your, your, your aversion to the term religion. I'm talking about the state system. If you created something like this where people commonly got together and commonly dealt with each other and respected that ethic within and cited this on historical precedent and codified this into a legitimate system and you were able to say, we have a million and a half members of this faith. How does government, in its rules that it created for itself, then say to you, you're not a church? How do they say Scientology's a church, but you're not? And once you're a church, you have that bubble. Now, how well you use it, that's up to you and the members of that church. But I, I feel that churches in of themselves are largely virtual nations. And there's some potential to be exploited there. And again, what happens when we start combining these things? What, what, what happens when you're a church... And you say our official home, our official chapel of worship is virtual. And it's on float or it's, you know, wherever. What happens then? And now I can use that, that infrastructure along with my bubble. Does that work? I don't know, but it sure seems like it should be exploited. Why wouldn't we exploit it? I mean, any, any of these things that you're like, well, that's like playing dirty or like that's misappropriate. Everything they do is dirty. Everything. You know what's dirty? Dirty is silencing a doctor through the use of a fact checker that some chick with a nose ring that doesn't know the difference between aspirin and Tylenol. That's a problem. That's what we're dealing with. Playing dirty is sending a SWAT team out to arrest a man because he has the wrong kind of pigs, which is something that's happened. Like, there, there, there is, yeah, fiat, somebody says in the, in, the, in the feed here, fiat is dirty. Everything they do is dirty. Everything they do is reprehensible. When I talk about forming a religion for this, I literally mean that I feel what they're doing is morally reprehensible And I want to take a stand on what I believe is moral, morally virtuous. And no matter what the belief in a deity or group of deities is in any religion, and if you have a particular religion this, this butts heads with, put yours on a special shelf. And just compare, like, because again, we're, we're talking about dealing with them in their field of battle. Well, right now they have all the advantages, but they've left openings. You take the openings. So look at the way government looks at every religion but yours. And how do I leverage that? Like, if you're in a fight with a really big guy who can kick your ass, but he stands there with his legs spread and you can literally see his nuts pressing against his pants and he's wide open to it and he's looking over there, you're not going to kick him in the nuts? 
I'm going to kick him in the nuts, and I'm going to kick him again. I'm going to step on those nuts while he's laying on the ground rolling around. Because the more I'm at a disadvantage, the more I need to take the advantages. And I think there's a tremendous, like, you know, bend the finger back till it breaks pain point here. And I, the First Church of Liberty, somebody's saying, I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. And how we actually, you know, if, if people can legitimately try to claim that a, a, a sci-fi movie like Star Wars and the concept of a Jedi is a faith, then how can something that already more than a billion people in the world, I guarantee you more than a billion people in the world already believe in the non-aggression principle? How is that not a legitimate article of faith as it relates to the human condition? I don't believe there's a legalistic argument that can be made against that. You either accept that or you delegitimize state recognition of all religion. You have two choices there. I mean, I think that we would, if we did this right, and, and people began to just say, do you identify this way or not? You don't really have to do anything. You just have to identify this way. You could become one of the biggest faiths in, in, in the world. And I don't think it's in conflict with, the, you know, I'm not going to speak for other faiths. I don't have a deep knowledge of the Buddhist faith or the, Uh, uh, or, or like the Muslim faith or whatever. I do not believe that it is in conflict with Judaism or Christianity to follow basically the golden rule and say that not only am I a Christian, but I'm also someone who believes in liberty of the human condition, in the sovereign rights granted to humans by God, as however you define God. And I mean, I really think that that is something that I know some people would, it wouldn't pass their purity test, and that's fine. I don't care. I know that if you can put 100,000 people into something like that, it's really hard to say it's not a religion, a recognized state religion. Anyway, let's move on from there. Um, I also wonder, and then how, again, how do all these things play together? What about first people's tribal systems? Don't we already refer to this as like the Chickasaw Nation, the Seminole Nation? Aren't these reservations also recognized as sovereign Indian nations that are kind of islanded within our federal system? Have you ever seen a politician really willing to take on Native Americans? And, you know, I know you're to say, like, the Keystone Pipeline and all. That's a different thing. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, can you envision, especially, like, let's use everything, the world of wokeism, people of color, etc. Like, you know, you, you can't say anything bad. So if this Native peoples on their sovereign reservation created a program to better themselves, including something that maybe they would say technically violates federal law. Can you see the which politician is going to get behind suppressing what appears to me to be the most oppressive subgroup of society in the country? The, the poorest people in our country often live on native reservations. I, I just think, like, if people talk about, like, Social Security being the third rail of politics, like... Screwing with Indians is the like the fifth rail. Like it, you don't even see it. It's like uh, no, I'm not doing it. What if what if one of these nations said, you know what? It's we've we've had enough of being told what to do with our land. A lot of people don't realize that under our treaties that establish these reservations, there's a lot of things they can't do with their land. And then you say we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And if you try to stop us, we're going to fight back. We're going to fight back legally, and we're going to defend our land. 
You, you, I mean, it's one thing when you have demonstrations being done on a piece of land outside the currently recognized uh, uh, reservation. That was the Keystone Pipeline. They didn't actually have control of that area. They said it should have been under their control, right? Okay, when you have it actually under their control and they say, we're not letting you in. We're not doing this. It's not that they don't have the force to be able to. Doesn't it get really dirty, really messy, really fast, icky, icky, I don't want to touch it, leave them alone? Okay, so you help them build that up for themselves. And you say, you know what you could do? You could start issuing passports. You could make your case to the United Nations that the Iroquois Nation or the Seminole Nation or you know Chickasaw Nation or whatever is a sovereign nation. What happens if that gets recognized? Now, El Salvador says if you come in and spend three bitcoins in El Salvador, you're a, a national or a, re a resident. I'm sorry, resident. You don't have full citizenship, but you're a resident. Why can't they do that? Why can't they even say you are a member of the tribe? You are a citizen, but you are a provisional citizen. Meaning, maybe there's, you know, they, they have these things where everybody that is a member of the tribe that lives on the reservation gets a certain amount of money every month from the income of the tribe. Maybe you don't qualify for that. Maybe you don't get voting rights within there. But maybe you get a passport and a recognized citizenship. And maybe that costs you $20,000 that they get to keep. Maybe that means you have to make a certain... They can do it any way they want to. It's their nation. How disingenuous are we that we, we, we say this is like the Chickasaw Nation and we don't mean it because they don't have their sovereignty? That's a place where the, the political will to push back is inherently limited. And honestly, the further we go into this Wokenista nonsense, the more inherently limited and the less capability the state has to do anything about it. And then maybe you don't have to go to some Central American place to acquire second citizenship. And what happens if that's paired in with a overriding, universal, true Catholic faith? A lot of people don't know what Catholic faith is really supposed to be. It's the universal faith. What if the true universal faith of humanity is that individuals have individual sovereign rights and they have a right to freely associate and choose who they wish to associate with? And that no one should take another person's rightfully acquired property. And no one should interfere with two adults' ability to interact with each other other than the people they've chosen to cede those rights to. And that you shouldn't be able to have the right to take over that decision from a person just because they were born in a particular place. Maybe that's your church. Maybe that's your faith. Do not make me your prophet. I have no interest in this. But I would help codify that if somebody wanted to take it on. I really would. Because I don't think it's that complicated. I, I, I think you're talking about, you know, you know, this this is my notes for my next interview. Maybe this is how big your Bible is. Or, you know, your holy book for this faith. It's not complicated. In fact, the least complicated it is, the better it is, because the more truly universal it is. And if I get it, you you start combining this with freedom cells, social media sites, the crypto space. First peoples, and that's not all going to happen overnight. Like All these things need to happen on their own. And then you start seeing where's the overlap. You start building the Venn diagram. All right, now here's the issue that I have, okay? There are some things I don't have answers for, and none of the shit that I said really addresses. One is the freedom of travel. Now, some of this can be addressed, again, with things like the existing Plan Bs that are there today. If, if native peoples begin to issue passports, But it's up, see, that's the thing. It's still limited to, well, what other nation recognizes that passport? 
What, what other nation says you can travel as a Navajo provisional citizen? I don't know. That's up to them. You know, the U.K. will decide that for themselves. Paraguay will decide that for themselves. And, you know, obviously just doing something with cryptocurrency or on social media or a freedom cell doesn't give you the freedom of travel beyond the borders of your nation. And it doesn't give you geographic independence in that if you go work in Europe, the government of the United States still wants income tax from you. Right? It doesn't do that. Only renouncing citizenship does. And that comes with its own problems. It's not as clean and easy as some people think. Uh, so freedom of travel, I don't have an answer for. Local codes, laws, and ordinances. The, the Native American thing solves that a great deal. A lot of that can be surplanted just by doing what I did. Strategic relocation. I live 15 minutes for Fort Worth. I need no permission to do anything on my property. There's no building codes where I live. A mile down the road, there's building codes. Here, there's no building codes. So we can be smart about where we choose to exist, but there's still laws. The federal government still says there's certain things I can't do. The state government says there's some things I can't do here. County government really doesn't care other than it will enforce state law. So none of these actually fix the land is for suckers argument that Peter Thiel came up with his idea for seasteading, uh, which also went nowhere. And one of the reasons I am pessimistic about all of this talk, at least for now, is if Peter Thiel can't do it with billions, how can Jack Spirit go do it with a couple hundred thousand people that listen to him? I, I don't know. But there is something to be said for body count. And if you can get enough other groups of this mindset, you know, maybe something can be done. But I don't have a good answer for the land-based problems. And I also don't have a good answer for federal laws and federal restrictions for U.S. citizens, other than, you know, Plan B, dual citizenship, renouncing citizenship, things like that. So this doesn't fix all the problems, but I look at it this way. Every bit of liberty that they've taken from me or from you, that we can take back, every scrap, every little piece matters. There is no piece too small to not take it back. It's back to the old analogy I have with most people behaving like cattle when they should behave like pigs. And that sounds kind of offensive and it sounds kind of weird, but what I mean by that is I can put cattle on a piece of land. I can set up some electro tape around that, put a solar charger on it, cows walk up to it, they get zapped. And if I keep them there long enough, I can turn the charger off and the cow will never test the fence again. And the cattle won't leave. And if there's a hole in the fence, you know, the cow's not that likely to push through it. And even, and we've had it around here, people let their cows get out and they go walking down the road and stuff. But if the sheriff doesn't find them, if they don't get round up, whatever, generally they come back. Like they're like dogs, you know, like, oh, well, you know where home is. You try that shit with a pig. That's why we have like 4 million feral hogs in Texas. If they get zapped by that fence, eventually they become trained to it, they become afraid of it, but overall, they're always kind of looking like, yeah, you know, I'm not sure, and every once in a while they'll risk it and they'll test it. That's why you have to test that fence every day. Because anybody that's ever raised hogs that way, using like electro fence paddock shift method, knows that if you, you, do, you get some growth up against that electro uh, wire, that eventually those pigs are going to get out and they're gone. They're gone. And in one generation, they stop being pink pigs and they turn into black pigs and they start looking like Russian boars. 
because the nature of the pig is piggish. We have not really domesticated the pig. Just because a pig can be friendly or trained doesn't mean it's been domesticated. The cow is very far from the wild bovine that it was derived from. And it almost enjoys being milked. And that's how humans have become. Like The more comfortable we become, the more of our freedom and liberty will give away. We're literally building the bars of the zoo around ourselves. And I'm not okay with that. And I don't pretend that, that I have a solution. I don't pretend that the solutions, if everybody did everything we could to fight back right now, starting this moment, I don't even pretend to say that we would have a good solution before I'm dead. But I'm not willing to not take back every little piece that I can. Down to structuring my business such that many of my expenses become legitimate business expenses and I pay less taxes. Everything I can do. To speak truth and to speak freedom every day on my podcast. And not give a shit who doesn't like it. And not care. Not try to build a bigger tent. Because you're trying to build a bigger tent, you're trying to please the cattle. I'm trying to you know, basically get my fellow pigs to show up by choice. Rather than appease the cattle so that I can fence them in. That's, that's big media tents. They fence you in. That's why there's a dichotomy in freaking big media now. MSN is, is a and the MSM is a dichotomy. It's 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 everybody else and it's Fox News or Newsmax or whatever, right? Like it's, it's this is a dichotomy, but they're basically feeding you the same bullshit on the same spoon. They're just one has the spoon in their left hand and one has it in their right hand. I'm not okay with this, and I don't think you should be either. So while I don't pretend that what I brought to you today is is a full solution, I think it's a a start. And it does bring this question up, and I don't have a good answer for it. It's what led this whole thing off today. Brian's question about, well, how do we vet people? Even little things like we're doing a freedom cell or whatever, and somebody wants to join. Well, how do we know they're not a fed, or they're not an idiot, or they're not both, or they're not just some scumbag? When we let somebody into a, a small group like that, I think it's pretty easy to vet that out pretty quickly. I, I will tell you this, if you're anywhere in what you'd call the liberty movement, patriot movement, etc., and you have someone sniffing around, becoming part of what you're doing, and they start talking about physically damaging something or someone or anything like that, you have a fed operative, an idiot, or both, and you do not want them to be part of your group, and they need to be sent packing. And I, I don't think that we're going to get anywhere with big protests in the streets and shit like that. So I don't even think we shouldn't even be putting ourselves in the position to be manipulated that way because there's something about crowds that we can get. If we get 10,000 people in a space and they're all angry about pretty much the same thing and we get two or three people that will pick up a rock and throw it, we're going to get a good 1% of that 10,000, which is a lot of people, to do stupid shit like storm a Capitol building, and if you get the cooperation of the Capitol Police opening doors and let it oh, come on in, then that number grows, and then you can make a really big case that these 10,000 or 100,000 people are really dangerous. So we don't need to be doing that kind of shit in the first place, and we do not ever need to be dealing with people who want to talk about beating people up or blowing people up or causing problems or shooting people or any of that shit. And this is exactly what the federal operatives are doing right now, is they're going to people who have such a, 
They have a pedigree that makes them look attractive to the liberty-minded people. You know, they were a ranger or something like that. But they have an undying loyalty to the state. And if their country comes and asks them to do a thing, they feel important. And, and to be fair, I think they probably have to, you know, they probably have to approach 50 to 100 people to get one that will do their bidding. But how much damage can that one person do? I think we have to be on guard for that. And we have to just be on guard for lazy, apathetic, stupid, violent scum. Like any of those adjectives need to be purged. I don't know how we do that other than I think in our smaller groups, we do need to at least initially not decide that because we both met each other on Freedom Cells or Float that we clearly belong together. I think that we need our basic human instincts. And I think what we always need to do in putting together groups is what I've taught from the beginning, and that is we lead with the relationship. I don't see... I, I'm skeptical with what John's doing because I, I'm not big on prepper groups. When people have asked me from the very beginning, why don't you put together a prepper group? I don't work that way. I don't go out and say, this is my prepper group, come join it. I think what you do is what I always saw done when I was growing up with tight-knit communities in rural Pennsylvania. People just naturally liked each other. They went fishing together. They went hunting together. They shared garden. Pro they just did it. And then you, you didn't have infiltrators because you never stood up for this kind of like advertised purpose. But certainly if something went wrong for one of the people in your community, you were going to stand up for them then. And I think we need to kind of, like, we're in a different world now. It's not 1983 anymore. Like, we actually can make these broader connections virtually, but we need to be careful as we begin to group together. And the virtual communities have an even bigger potential for infiltrators. So if you start doing business that's illegal, you know, like a public Silk Road or something like that, you have a real potential for the other party in that transaction to be some sort of agent or something. I don't advise that either. I think that anarchists, agorists, etc., we work much better in the gray market than the black market. What we're doing needs to be legal. Maybe it's not exactly kosher, if that makes sense, right? And I'll, I'll leave it at that today. But that's something we have to be very, very careful of. Here's my real question, though, for the establishment. And, and I think everybody that would love the opportunity to prove that what we say works does work, why is there so much opposition to having some sort of test bed? Why, why, since we've been making this case, I mean, this, this case is as old as the country itself, if you're an American. It's older than, than, than when this country was colonies, if you're an American. This case that we don't need government. Why can't we have a county somewhere, a county-sized piece of land? It doesn't even have to be very good. Where what happens there is our business and you leave us alone. Don't you think if we were wrong, they would have just said, here, go ahead, try it. Go ahead. See, I believe that these people won't, that they have so much resistance to this, because they're not only are they afraid of the fact that it would work, they know that it would. They know that it would. I think if you gave, like you just took like, something the size of like Tarrant County, Texas that wasn't already developed and said, here you go, guys. You can be Libertas. We won't interfere. We will leave you alone. If you do business outside of your boundaries and into our nation, then you're subject to the law just like somebody from Mexico is. But we will leave you alone. 
You can have your own importation and exportation agreements with whoever you want. You can do anything you want that any other nation could do as long as you don't threaten us with you know, military force, which, of course, we wouldn't do as a tiny micronation. How long do you think it would take before that became one of the wealthiest places on planet Earth? I mean, I really, I really don't think it would be very long. Because we're not talking about isolationism then. See, I think this is the problem. When people talk about we're going to have a community and we're going to grow all our own food and stuff like that, no, you're not. No, you're not. I don't want to be isolated from the rest of the world. I just want to be left alone by the rest of the world. Somebody says 10 years on the timeline. I think that's actually pretty, pretty damn accurate. It wouldn't be overnight. But a decade? A decade isn't that long. I want to be able to buy steel to build a building. I don't want to have to produce steel from iron ore on a piece of land that has no iron ore underneath it. And even if you have that, you're going to have something you don't have. But they won't allow it. They won't allow it. And the reason they won't allow it is the same reason we should be pushing for it every way we can in every little increment that we can get putting points of pressure and pain on the system everywhere we can, they won't allow it because it works. The, the United States is a perfect example of it working with it not being perfect. And when I say perfect, I don't mean utopian perfect because that's never going to be a thing. What I mean is it wasn't complete freedom. But there's really never been a nation with the freedom this nation had from its beginning. With that much opportunity for people, that much opportunity to succeed and that much opportunity to fail. And that's how we became the wealthiest nation that's ever existed on the planet. But the government that we had used the power that it had to create another power for itself and then another power for itself and then another power for itself and then another power for itself, etc., on and on and on. And it squandered the freedom and now it's destroying its own wealth. But the fact that it happened... The fact that this piece of dirt went from being a third world, you know, far cesspool, basically, to the most wealthy and powerful entity that's ever existed on the planet tells you what liberty does. Free enterprise breeds success, and it breeds competition, and competition breeds both further success and innovation and cooperation. And all the ills that they talk of about capitalism and monopoly, etc., in this country only were possible through the cooperation between these corporate entities and government. We had, you know, we have this, this strong separation of church and state in our country and in our constitution. If the founders really wanted us to do a uh, do us a favor, they would have added a separation of corporation and state. Because that's fascism. That's fascism. And if you want to know the root of the problem, not the cause, all cause of all problems you have today, the root of the problems in America today, it's primarily a fascist root. It is this unholy cabal of the state's authority married to the corporation's power. And that is why what we want to do is so difficult, because it's not in their best interest. But I think we can. 
And with that, let's wrap things up and uh, remind you guys that one of the ways that you can help support the Survival Podcast is do your online shopping where? tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you do that, you can help us out no matter what you buy, and you can also use TSPAS to find all the items that I've recommended over the years and written reviews on. Where if if you don't see if you if you see it there, I own it, I spent my own money on it, and I would buy it again, or I won't recommend it. But again, no matter what you buy, even if it's not listed there, as long as you start there, you help support us in the work that we do. Today's item of the day is one that I've used a great deal of times to explain value to people. It's a garden hose. It's made by a company called Gilmore. It's the Gilmore Pro Commercial Hose. It's available in lengths of 25, 50, 75, and 100 feet. It is the best hose for the money that I have found. I'm not going to say I haven't found any that might not be a little bit better quality, but I haven't found any that are better quality without mortgaging a kidney. These are very affordable, and they don't constantly kink, and they have very good hardware on both ends of them. And the reason I always say to buy the best you can afford for the value and the price uh, ratio is because if you buy, for instance, a cheap garden hose, you might buy it for half the price and throw it away once every year or two years and be miserable while you're using it. Where To me, this is a minimum 10-year purchase. The worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to have a, one of the pieces of hardware go bad on you on one side or the other. You cut it off for a couple bucks and put a, a replacement piece on and keep using it. I have some of these that are eight years old that are damn well as good as the day I bought them. In fact, they might be better. They're a little bit better broken in. That brings me to something about this hose and other good quality hoses I've heard people say. You know, all hoses still kink. I want to tell you what you should do when you get a new garden hose. You should find a great big open area where the hose can lay out as one long line or at most maybe doubled back on itself one time where it's going to get a lot of sun on it. And you should hook it up to a hose bib, and you should unroll it. Don't pull it out. Unroll it like you're unrolling a wheel and roll it out as straight as possible. Run some water through it, and then on the other end of it, attach some sort of a hose nozzle, something that will hold pressure. Then turn the water on, open the nozzle, and, and run it till the hose is full of water and close it so it's pressurized. Leave it sit in the sun for about an hour, hour and a half, and then go let the pressure off, but leave it where it is for the rest of the day until tomorrow, and then wind it up on a hose winder or on the ground, however you do it. If you do that with new hoses, even shitty ones, your life will be better. These are the types of little, simple lifestyle tips that you tune into TSP to learn about, and if you just... Like, yank that thing out. You'll never get it broken in. It has that, that, that coil memory built into it. And if you think about the way you roll up a hose versus the way one's rolled up in a store, where it's just rolled up as tightly as it can, and it's got very small rolls to the inner part of the, of the roll-up, and then it's banded together really tight, you can understand why it develops a memory that will always be a problem until you break its memory. And if it doesn't break in one day, do it again the next day. And if you keep doing this, you will eventually make it more soft and supple, and you won't have these problems. Also, remember, you can join the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get a bunch of really great discounts. i got a new discount vendor coming for you this probably this week or next. Awesome people I've been uh, friends with for a long time that I'm going to bring you. And there's probably something that you're going to buy this month, maybe two or three things you're going to buy this month, and certainly multiple things you're going to buy over the year you could have got from MSB vendors. 
you could have gotten discounts on, and your membership could have paid for itself, and you would support the show. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members, or click on the members tab at the website to learn more about that. Now let's talk about our song of the day. Song of the day today is, again, by Survivor. We're in Survivor Week. And I talked about how Survivor, I think, is a very underrated band. And it's a lot to do with the Rocky movies, um, because everybody associates them, you know, Eye of the Tiger, things like that. This is another song from a movie. And it's a movie that kind of like, if you're an 80s kid like I am, you probably look back on with both loathing and love. The Karate Kid. And it's called Moment of Truth. And yesterday I said that sometimes Survivor gets accused of doing very formulaic music, and I don't think that's fair because everybody from every time, except for truly outliers, tends to do formulaic music, especially to serve it into the market. I will tell you this song, though, is highly formulaic. This is not like the song yesterday. The song I gave you yesterday, again, I think that had, I would say even the, the, the queen of today with that, I can't think of that young guy's name that came off of American Idol, the queen of today could do that song and just make it even better than it was. It's a very amazing, very orchestral um unconventional, well-arranged, incredible piece of music. This is very much an 80s movie-sounding soundtrack song, which is what it is. Um, but it is indicative of Survivor and kind of their glory years, where they uh, made a fortune, honestly, because of, of these, uh, these, these soundtrack songs. Uh, and, and I also assert that we're somewhat limited and underrated due to them. This song also has a really good message in of itself you know of course in the movie Karate Kid Daniel's fighting to have his you know his, his honor and his decency and to be left alone by the bullies and whatever though I agree with those of you that say that you can make a good case that Daniel was the actual bully in a lot of ways at least a twerp uh, in the original uh, Karate Kid movie uh, that you could be very much construed as right um, but that was the premise right and that's what you, when you were a little kid and you wanted to do your karate you kind of bought into when you watched it and that's why we liked it when we were kids um, but the song of course is about that moment of truth where you have to do the things that only you can do for yourself to get what you want in the world i think that fits really well with today's subject i'm i mean if you really if you really think about this guys It is absolutely the case that if we're going to get any form of true liberty and freedom in our world today, we're not going to get it by asking for it, by petitioning for it, by protesting for it. We're going to have to take it. And I think every time, I was talking about today in the show, where you, you take that one little piece back, each one of those are a moment of truth. I don't think it's the moment of truth. I think a life is lived through countless moments of truth and knowing when to step up and take your shot. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
Can I? 